0: How are you doing, my friend?
1: I'm very well, thanks. Good to see you. How are you? I'm,
0: um, I'm doing great. I uh, Likewise, you're looking and sounding great. Thank you. Um, for those who are tuning in, you're listening to the Rex Crim Show. And today I'm chatting with um, an old friend and fellow intellect, all things criminology. So um, welcome to the show, Alex Beloir.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Intellect is a big word I was about to say, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm honored that you'd give me that title.
0: I'm proud. Uh, I'm proud to say, uh, fellow intellect. When I look through your achievements thus far, I see you've already got about five publications on the go. And um, maybe we can you can give a bit of context uh, at the moment as to what you're doing. You're a PhD candidate at which university?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Groningen, which is in the north of the Netherlands. To be a bit more precise, I actually work for the faculty, which is known as Campus Friesland, which is an antenna campus which is in Leeuwarda, so it's a beautiful city in Friesland, about 35 minutes uh, travel away from Groningen, so it's still in the north where it's nice and uh, cold and uh, big open fields, but uh, no, Campus Friesland is a, uh, how do you say, an antenna of the university where it's a uh, multi-interdisciplinary faculty, where we've got people from all different backgrounds and uh, different studies who come together. And I think we have around about 40 PhD students there now. I may be wrong, it may be a bit less or a bit more, but it's a uh, definitely a campus that's been growing in the past years.
0: You're, you're in your, um, this is your second year of the PhD or this is your first year at the moment?
1: Yeah, this is my second year. So I started in September 20, uh, i just trying to think now. Yeah, it's a year and a half now. So it's just been uh, i it's 2019 that I've been uh, in the PhD co- course so far, which isn't exactly in criminology, but I've managed to make it uh, as criminological as possible. I find as a criminologist, your heart always tends to wean back to that certain point.
0: You've um, you've certainly ascribed to the academic output uh, pressure. I think in uh, in Well, I don't want to say overachieving. I mean, it's it's commendable. I didn't realize you had so many um works on the go uh i want to learn about your first publication on rogue landlords and and Mm -hmm. about your work um specifically uh, looking at criminology from an interdisciplinary lens i think you have uh, a strong background in law but for now give a bit of context about you know how it is that where you were born um how the accent that we're hearing you speak now, I think you speak about three languages.
1: It's a, it's a bit of a mix of everything. I would say it's a bit of a European twang, which has got a bit of a everything thrown in. But to, to give some background, uh, I'm actually half French and half British, uh, born to a French father and a British mother in France. Um, I spent the first couple of years of my life in France before I moved to the UK. Where I lived for approximately 10 years, so until about the age of 12. So I did my primary school there. And then uh, my uh, parents, my father was a bit upset that his uh, children didn't speak French. So we decided, OK, I'd like us to move back to France now. So that's where we headed. And that's where I did my uh, high school. Um, how do you say my, my, whole, my whole time at high school was done there, followed by my bachelor's study, which was in sociology and anthropology in Normandy. And then um, after I'd finished that, when I was coming towards my final year, I really got into criminology as I stumbled upon it out of nowhere. I thought this is something I really want to study that I want to focus on and um, if anyone knows a little bit of anything about schooling of the education system especially university system in France it's that criminology isn't seen as a separate study in itself so that means that if I wanted to study criminology in France I would have to either find a university that offered sociology with a criminology track or psychology or law with a criminology track for example so therefore I decided to uh open horizons and see where else i could um well where else they offered criminology and by chance i stumbled upon uh, the netherlands and utrecht I applied for the masters program and uh, that's a program in global criminology and cultural criminology as they say critical criminology and i was accepted there in 2014 and since then i've been uh in the Netherlands, working uh, on my master's, followed by a break before I went back to academia in 2017.
0: That's, uh, you're you're segueing in nicely. I want to give uh, anyone listening some context to how we met, but before before you uh, can give any examples of our time together, um, to be clear, I mean, I think French is your is, is French your first language, uh, followed by English?
1: Um, it's uh, English would be my first language, followed by French. It's kind of a mix of everything. I've noticed that, having lived so long in France, my English kind of uh, needed some brushing up after a while, especially when I moved to the Netherlands. On the
0: contrary, on the contrary, you sound like um, your English is more, um, more well, posher than mine, shall we say?
1: Oh, I would say posher. I mean that that uh, how do you say that? Uh, that canadian twang has always got some charm to it but uh yeah no english would be my mother language i would say and then french my second uh, my second tongue yeah
0: you've uh, fully uh, assimilated now to the netherlands uh, you're you're true dutch you're able to speak the language entirely fluently
1: i wouldn't say entirely fluently but i'm uh, fluent enough to be understood and to read the newspaper watch television uh to have a meeting if it was only with a, a meeting only with dutch speakers and they didn't speak a word of english i would say that uh uh, that doesn't happen, of course, because uh, everyone in the Netherlands speaks English, which is a big help. But uh, if there was, if that wasn't the case, I'd be able to follow the meetings and everything without too many issues, bar some uh, major and uh, minor grammar mistakes here and there. But um, from my experience, people are able to understand me, so that's the main.
0: And you're able to balance, uh, you know, so many languages, I think uh, the slightest m- mistakes are forgivable. But I, it, it's important. <laughs> I, I think it's important to just get this idea of um this transnational and global perspective yeah um being that you know you as you touched on uh, my hope is to establish the tenets of critical and, and cultural criminology and um and maybe we can do that vis-a-vis uh, how how it is that we met in the netherlands
1: that's what i'm here for sounds great yeah i also realized Good. that i didn't uh answer your question about my first publication but I think we'll come back to that later it's not as important in my opinion as uh getting into the depths of what is criminology and all those other questions
0: I'll I'll keep you on track I have a topic list and uh I'm hoping to try to model my my own uh academic resume after your own so I have uh, a list of things I'm things I'm keenly interested in I know it's a competitive industry but (laughs) let's hope soon I'll be uh I'll be uh, up to par. I don't doubt it. Yeah, for now, uh, you know, we'll we'll carry on. But I do hope to arrive at this idea of what a kingpin criminology, if such a thing existed, what it might look or sound like. And, uh, and that's, I guess, what we're doing here today. But as a basis of understanding global crime and cultural criminology, what exactly is critical criminology in your mind? Um, that is a
1: great question. I would say that to perhaps best understand what critical criminology is, we could start by comparing it to what is mainstream criminology. And we could say that there's kind of, in the field of criminology, there's kind of these two distinct branches, where, as I just mentioned, one would be mainstream criminology, quote unquote, and the other would be critical criminology. And we could say that with mainstream criminology, in my opinion, the way it is seen is that it's very much based on defining crime, based on what governments or the states would define as being uh, a criminal or a deviant act, for example. So this would be um, the most classical stereotypical uh, crimes that you would see in a, a Netflix TV show, for example, from drug dealing, prostitution, et cetera, et cetera, uh, murder, these sort of things. Um, whereas critical criminology, I would say that it doesn't just subscribe to, um, how would you say this, to, to what is defined as being illegal by the government or what is defined as being criminal by, um, government institutions. It rather perceives crime through the lens of um, acts that are harmful or anything that causes social harm. Uh, And some would say also, depending as a little bit of also uh, debate upon this, acts which are also done intentionally to be harmful, so to say. And I would say that this is kind of the core idea around critical criminology. It's about defining uh, crime through a lens which isn't held by the government or by any institutional overarching entity or so to speak. And it's more looking into what is crime exactly. And it's also looking into um, another another point I would kind of separate the two forms between is that when it comes to mainstream criminology responses as to tackling crime would focus on the individual or so to say, and how could we implement something to get rid of crime or improve crime statistics. And in the best case scenario, this kind of goes to rehabilitating offenders in the worst case scenario it's effectively punishing them but i would say that with critical criminology we would look into um, these overarching social structures and how these influence people to come to these certain criminal acts or these acts that we define as being criminal or so to say and um, therefore what could we do to to limit these harmful practices that that stem from these overarching entities and why they they stem from here for example
0: I, I think you you know you you talk about around this um idea of balancing structure versus agency which is um mm-hmm. you know a way of understanding uh, a, a person's a person's Autonomy or agency versus, you know, the circ- social circumstances uh, in which they find themselves. Exactly. Um, would would you would you agree that um, critical criminology tends to be a little bit biased in looking at the circumstantial and problematizing of the state, so to speak?
1: I would say, to a certain degree, it very much does. And I like the word bias that you use here, because as critical criminologists, uh, you kind of entrench yourself into these certain frames and these overarching uh, entities as i said as i called them earlier and i would say there is a certain bias there for sure whereas some may say we even point the finger at elements being not the fault of individuals faults themselves and that we kind of say that perhaps this is due to bigger issues that are out and about etc but i would definitely say there's a bias there uh, which comes to these structures as you say in society And they've been problematic in a number of ways, I would say. For example, we take these holistic approaches and we kind of try to tackle crime based on these overarching assumptions. And sometimes, and this is the criticism that critical criminology receives from mainstream criminology, is it's not anchored in practice enough, for example. So we have these grand ideas of what we should do, for example, well, to solve drug dealing and drug, how do you say, issues, we should make it completely illegal, completely regulated and make sure that the money, the revenue that comes from drugs, therefore, gets, how do you say, uh, redirected into, um, how could you say, rehabilitating people who have got issues or addictions to drugs, et cetera. And this was all well and fine in theory. But I would say then in practice, when it comes to anchoring that in reality, that's a very how do you say it's not it's not a task you can do overnight or so to say although there have been steps in the right direction as we can see in Canada and we can see in America with certain states legalizing but they also have some issues around them which is a a tangent I won't go upon uh, at the moment but um, to refer to your main question I would definitely say there is a certain bias when it comes to to structures and um, pointing the finger towards social uh, dynamics to being at the root of. Of crime, or so to say.
0: I think you're fighting a little bit of an uphill battle because, as you mentioned, you're in a faculty that's not a one that based on criminology. I think you're working with a lot of legal scholars at the moment. Um, I I want to segue eventually into what you're working on and your current uh, research interests, but maybe we'll get there via the past. So um, Mm -hmm. now that we've established some idea of what critical criminology is, um, maybe we'll move on to what is cultural and uh, how it is you and I came to meet.
1: Yeah, I would say that's definitely the uh, overarching question. What is cultural, so to speak? And uh, even having studied sociology, anthropology, and uh, criminology, I have no clue I'm completely honest, how we could define culture, uh, so to well, say. Well, just,
0: just hammer home for those listening the, the difference, but, you know, what what attracted you, again, to the Netherlands, and what was the state of yeah. criminology in, in France?
1: So the state of criminology in France, I'm not an expert on it, because as I said, I didn't study it myself, I only uh, dipped my toes into exploring what well, the options were in France, or so to speak, but as I mentioned, they weren't seen as a separate discipline, academic discipline in themselves, and more an annex of um, law, legal studies, or sociology or psychology, depending very much on the uh, the ideology of the university, or so to say. So that is what attracted me to uh, criminology in itself. I wanted to to, to study it as a discipline as itself, and not see it to be a subsection of a sort of discipline. Um, and this was partly because I'd done a lot of reading of true crime. It was something I was fascinated in my teenage years and watching a lot of films. And I think a lot of people have uh, certainly similar experiences, video games and all these stereotypical things. Um, and also this idea that I think I was always attracted to crime. But as myself, I never dared commit crime myself. I'm a bit too much of a, a chicken for that, or so to say. And this was a way of getting close to crime without being actively or directly involved with it myself, or so to say. Um but I would say that that's what really attracted me to uh, criminology in the first place. And more specifically to critical criminology is the fact that it looks into what we often say within critical criminology ourselves into the Verbarian Verstehen. So Max Weber is a famous uh, sociologist, philosopher. I'm sure that you've heard of him. Uh, uh, or mo- most of your uh, listeners have heard of him. But uh, he said that basically with this sort of uh, mantra, this sort of maxim of his, we kind of look into understanding people's rationalizations and uh, interpretations of sort of phenomenon and this is very much at the core of uh, cultural criminology trying to understand how people uh, make sense of their environment why they react in a certain way for example and this is what really fascinated me the more qualitative side I think being a sociologist I think that's what interested me into the cultural criminology rather than the um the mainstream criminology which was more dependent on of course i'm resuming it now into one word summarizing it into one word but that's more dependent on what the state deems to be criminal or not so i think that's why in the netherlands was just by pure choice if i'm on it by pure chance sorry if i'm completely honest
0: mm-hmm. i you, you so many great ideas and uh, we're, we're you know we're in a certain way uh, talking abstractly and, and about great thinkers. Um, you, you touched on Ver, Verstand, which I think is a German term, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Correct. Yeah. And when I think, think of the little bit of uh, reading that I've done on we- Max Weber, uh, I seem to recall a, a passage where he talks about uh, folks being inter- um, sort of intertwined or the interconnections of webs, you know, and, and those, mm-hmm. the meaning of each of those webs is how you might go about trying to understand what is culture. Yeah. And um, so you also alluded to this idea of being driven to study criminology, much like myself. Uh, I don't think you said it, but, but would you agree with this idea of the CSI effect? Have you heard of that before?
1: I've never heard it coined, but if I interpret it correctly, it's basically uh, being drawn to criminology from watching the CSI, uh, crime scene investigation show, or something along those lines. Now,
0: precisely, you can see a direct correlation between en- enrollments in criminology courses and uh, you know the the birth of these sorts of true crime TV shows. So, in a way, you know what we're talking about is the real version of true of what crime truly is, I think, or yeah. or what it isn't um much of uh, criminologist jobs are are still trying to figure out the the inner workings um of this thing dare we call it its own discipline some places it it belongs to other branches of knowledge and it's rather new and uh upcoming i think you'll agree
1: criminology in itself you mean if yes I correctly. yeah definitely i would definitely say it is and it's uh I just read a fantastic book, which is called uh, Toward a Unified Criminology by Robert Agnew. He's quite a famous criminologist in both the uh, mainstream and also the critical field. And he basically uh, has in the, in the first chapter, I think it is, or his introduction, he talks about the upcoming of criminology and its current state today. And he very much clearly well defines how it's still seeking itself and it's still a discipline that has a lot of inner fighting due to it being so uh, so young and these, this, this confrontation or these fights, what we just mentioned, uh, in the introduction about uh, mainstream and cultural criminology but i would completely agree that it kind of has a lot of soul seeking to do or uh, that it's kind of got its grounds down to what it aims to do but the the way of how it's going to iron out those kinks is still very much a how would you say in progress
0: mm-hmm. i think we could go at at, at length but for the uh, purposes of today you know i'll link in uh, the show notes um, maybe your suggestion towards a unified criminology and and other works uh, that we that we touch on if people want to learn good. learn more about it but um, spread the word yeah let's move now to this you know how we went about practicing cultural criminology we met at uh, in the netherlands um, let's talk about the program that we underwent together yes where did how did? what was the ma program like for you and uh what was your you say you didn't really want to do crime yourself but your field research as i recall brought you back to france and some <laughs> could say you were brushing you were flirting with the line of uh, legality
1: yeah i think that's um pretty much the situation for many criminologists who do uh some empirical research and uh kind of go into more qualitative uh empirical research instead of just the the desk sort of um sitting behind the desk and reading or downloading different files. But yeah, we met, as you just mentioned, in Utrecht in the master's program on critical criminology. To answer your first question.
0: That's 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 Utrecht University. Yeah, uh,
1: exactly. Yeah, Utrecht. Yeah.
0: For people that might have a uh, hard time pronouncing it, uh, we'll put a link maybe to the new program there. And I, just touch for a quick second on the podcast from folks. I think there's a couple of students right now doing uh, you showed me about our recent, uh, our, our, one of our favorite profs there, uh, Damien Z- Zajic.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a, uh, how do you say, there was also two uh, Dutch students. I think they're Dutch at least. There are uh, podcasts in Dutch. It's called Het Criminolo in Dutch, which basically means the criminologist. And it's a podcast hosted by two uh, ex-master students, such as ourselves, so to say um on then they have interviews with different criminologists usually either they're going to be PhD students or higher up professors etc from different backgrounds and they talk about different themes within criminology and their own research or so to speak to kind of see what they've been researching and uh, their findings and I would say for all of your Dutch listeners I would highly recommend it uh, I've never met the two uh, hosts of that show so I'm not like they're paying me or anything to uh to promote them here or anything like that, but I would say for any of you who speak Dutch, it's definitely very insightful.
0: I can only understand uh, the the episode in English with our uh, our former and uh, I'd like to consider friend Damien uh, Zajic, um who I think you have a common interest in in, in researching drugs, which is what your, exactly. your your MA thesis was on. So I will definitely put a link uh, in show notes to to that podcast in that episode if anyone wants to hear more but um for now tell us about your ma thesis and that field uh, research that you got into um when we first knew each other
1: yeah definitely so as you just uh, mentioned we um At the end of the master's program to to, uh, graduate, we had to write a master's thesis. And I focused mine on the topic of cannabis dealing in Paris, more specifically, and how uh, law enforcement perceives cannabis dealing, uh, cannabis markets in the city of Paris and how they go about tackling them. Um, So in this sense, I was looking at both, uh, two different sides at the same time. I was looking on the one hand at the cannabis dealers And on the other hand, at the police officers or the more street level enforcement uh, or the specialized brigades for tackling uh, cannabis dealing in the city of Paris. Uh, Damien Zeitge, as you just mentioned, who's an expert on uh, everything to do with uh, drug trafficking, organized crime. uh, He focused more on cocaine. So he was uh, assigned as my um, as my supervisor, who I was very happy to have. Uh, he was a big help in, uh, in multiple ways when it came to researching such a topic. But yeah, my research in itself involved qualitative research being on the field in Paris. So I went back to Paris for approximately, I'd say maybe three to four months, perhaps a bit more. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to stay with some friends there. And uh, my days basically consisted almost every single day for those three, four months of, at first, going out on the streets, trying to figure out where the hotspots were in Paris for buying cannabis, how it worked, etc. And then trying to climb my way up the ranks from there to see how far I could get. And this went through diverse ways. At some points it was just finding people who were enjoying a joint in the street at that point and then asking them where they bought it from, getting that person's number and then going up through that way through the echelons to see how far, how high I could get. Other times it was through help with some university professors or experts in Paris who had also studied um, research similar topics. So they had some good gatekeepers. Uh, They were gatekeepers themselves, but they also gave some good tips on how to access different individuals. But uh, I can remember very well that at one point, without divulging any information, I was interviewing someone who bought substantial amounts of uh, of cannabis to then sell to, uh, how could you say, smaller level sellers within the city of Paris. And uh, we were doing an interview at one point at his place reassured me there was nothing in the house so to not to worry beforehand so i showed up one evening very friendly guy offered me if i want some dinner with him or anything unfortunately i just had food but we had a small chat he said oh yeah come to my bedroom we can have a chat there so we're conducting the interview and i'd say it was about an hour and a half in the doorbell rang he said oh this will be interesting for your research come on uh come on over and see this and at that point there was someone who walked in with two huge sports bags filled with cannabis and uh they weighed it. I'm not going to say the amounts there were, but there was definitely a substantial amount, more than I'd ever seen by any, uh, in my, with my own eyes before. Even having lived in the Netherlands, I hadn't seen that many, those big quantities uh, myself. But um, yeah, I found myself in the middle of this uh, deal going down where the echelon above him uh, was bringing him his stock or so to speak and some money was being transferred. So I had a quick chat with the, the delivery guy, we could say, and tried to get his number to, to go further up but that was uh you mentioned earlier brushing shoulders with crime i would say that was one of the experiences where i was in the midst of a of a deal going down completely unexpected and at that point i thought criminology is amazing honestly this is this is what i came here to study for to be right in the thick of it
0: where does the idea of verstehen come into that example
1: yeah i would say that this is where it comes down to um these stereotypes people have of uh, of drug dealers for example i mean if i take the french um the way the, the, how do you say, it's a stereotypical French um, image of a, of a drug dealer or a cannabis user would be, how do you say, someone who's a bit lazy, who's unemployed, stays at home and uh, just smokes the whole time, is doesn't contribute to society in any other way. And the dealers are just as bad, if not worse, or so to say. And um, when I was there, I could just see that it was, how do you say, a group of young guys who did this on the side to help pay various life expenses basically they're very friendly they were very open and i would say that this is where the verstehen comes in it's kind of when you try to see why people um, commit certain acts how they get involved into certain um how do you say to certain acts or to to doing certain things you can kind of realize well these stereotypes that we hear and also perpetrated to a certain degree within the media they're not entirely justly founded or so to say, or they don't, def- they don't always do justice. These images I would have, I would, ha- that we can have mm-hmm. as, a, as a society. And I would say that's the importance of verstehen. we can kind of see how people rationalize themselves, so their, um, their interpretate their how do you say, they rationalize their thoughts about why they would, well, rationalization. Sorry, I'm getting a muddled it's, up mic. It's there.
0: much, uh, it's much later. Uh, you're several hours ahead of me in, in Toronto time. Uh, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for meeting me in your
1: evening. <laughs> that's fine. But now to, to resume that part, I would say that it doesn't come especially to rationalization, but how people construct reality around them and mm-hmm. understanding their points of view. And when it's when we do that and when we try to understand how people perceive their world, that's when basically we can then say, okay, these stereotypes that we have or these images aren't necessarily true. So I would say that shame kind of fits in here, not so much on the one to one level or so to say of course there is a lot of interest in understanding why someone would do uh this activity to to pay the bills on the side or so to say but it's uh, more about breaking the status
0: quo well. breaking the status quo yeah they're uh, they're just trying to survive uh and as you're talking it's making me realize a common theme in your work um talk You know, mentioning the interdisciplinary nature of criminology, and you seem to have a keen interest in, um, you know, markets and illegal markets, um, you know, tying in with your your first publication, but maybe you can just summarize... Um, maybe any findings um, specifically of your MA thesis, or, yeah, um, or or just hammer home this idea of what cultural criminology is not, which is uh, the difference between quantitative and qualitative. Mm-hmm.
1: I would say that I was about to branch out upon it earlier when I mentioned these status quo's and these stereotypes. What I found when it come when it came to the police, for example, they're very much anchored on these uh, stereotypes of a certain profile of cannabis dealer, for example. And this meant that certain individuals who didn't fit this profile were very much, very, how do you say, they could get away, or get away, I don't like using that word, but they were able to conduct their activities um, without having too many worries about the police because they didn't fit a certain stereotypical profile, We could say. And then we saw, on the other hand, that those that did fit that profile, they were the targets of the police relentlessly, nonstop. And this is where we saw, and this was the main finding of my my, uh, master's uh, thesis, that basically that they targeted the poorer neighborhoods of France and they would have different policing um, structures that would be there specifically for tackling drugs and uh, cannabis markets in themselves. And this is where we saw that the whole stereotyping and the, uh, all these labeling that we talk about as a theory in criminology uh, these come at play where we could see that the police therefore was also subjected to these stereotypes and in the end it was counterproductive because there was a whole load of markets that were able to flourish in this sense and i have to put a caveat on that I don't want to say that i was i'm trying I wanted them to uh, be more effective and get rid of these markets not at all the goal of my thesis was to basically look at how do uh, politics and also these stereotypes trickle down to affecting the way police tackle these markets so to say and this is how it this is how it translated into practice basically
0: i'm thinking of a colleague of ours in the ma program uh, who you keep in close contact with and um, times that him and i would chat criminological theory and um, and i'm thinking of another episode that um, that uh, maybe i'll have to invite him on um, because he was able to you touch on labeling theory. And I mean, I I think you and I have our, our similar interests, but you know, there's certainly divergence from, from where our interests collide, which is part of what makes uh, criminology so exciting. But this person thinking I'm thinking of specifically in Manchester, uh, the UK would be able to off the top of his back of his hand, rhyme off, you know, the the beginnings of criminology with the Chicago school um, origin and, and even, you know, further back, uh, you know, you could go all the way back to, to um, the Italian thinkers and, and before. So maybe we'll make another episode on the, on the, uh, the inner workings of crime theory criminology oh, yeah. and what it's born out of. But for now, you and I will stay on topic of, um, of, of our current research interests and where, uh, where where we think cultural criminology and critical criminology have the potential to go in the future. Mm-hmm. So, so um, tie, tie in a few ideas about, you know, how you decided to move on to your next uh, topic of research that led to your first publication.
1: So I would basically done my work on markets, as you put it yourself, on cannabis markets in uh, in Paris. And that's why I graduated with my master's degree. And I remained in the Netherlands afterwards. I thought I'd go back to France, but I uh, was far too attached to the Netherlands. I decided to stay and very pleased that I did. I'm still happy to be here to this day partly um,
0: for partly for work but also partly for pleasure
1: exactly especially for love as you could say so, yes
0: indeed the seductive parts of crime and criminology
1: yeah exactly yeah definitely it's not all uh how do you say it? it's not all violence and uh, and weapons on the streets as they say
0: it wasn't necessarily love that uh, we found on our many occasions in the red light district and walking through amsterdam <laughs> I should say
1: no. It's uh it's quite a different form of love, and uh, I'm happy to say for myself in that sense. A far
0: more wholesome type. I'll, yeah. I'll keep I'll keep away from the seedy uh, innuendos. Um, I have my Rex Crim goggles on, perhaps.
1: You know that's why we love talking. It's for the uh, it's for the innuendos mostly. We'll I've been uh, trying to behave so far. Yeah.
0: Feel free to let loose. I, I can think of times that we were uh, rolling over with laughter. Um, times that we'd have field trips or we were just doing extracurricular um, site searching yeah. <laughs> living at as an expat um, in uh, for grad school is highly recommended.
1: Oh, geez. Yes. Oh my. I
0: look back with uh, very fond memories.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: So, so the, the first publication um, yeah. on rogue land- landlords, I think is fitting because as a, as a student in the Netherlands, as a, I often talk in other episodes with my friends, you know, being a privileged white male, in the case of, uh, you know, not being Dutch, uh, living in the Netherlands, it's, it wasn't easy to find a place to live for me. No. And maybe you can, maybe you can relate. So what inspired you to, you know, how, what, what was your familiarity with the housing market in the Netherlands yeah. as a grad student?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like, like you said earlier, I was had this idea of markets when it came to uh, my bachelor's thesis, which was something I was hung up on to a certain degree, but then I, um, Afterwards, as I said, I stayed in the Netherlands and I moved to a different city here in the North Röninger, where I'm still based now. And um, I was uh, reflecting upon getting back into academia. And I was reflecting back on my time as a graduate student in Utrecht. I remember when I first came over in 2014, finding accommodation in the Netherlands was a living hell, especially as a student. We've got a tight budget. But for those of you who don't know, it's a very tight, how do you say, housing market, especially a rental one. Especially in cities such as Utrecht, but it's just getting worse and worse. So I count my uh, my lucky stars that it wasn't as bad back then for us as it is now. But um, put a long story short, I managed to find accommodation. I managed to pay what I thought were legitimate costs to uh, to move into this uh, to this house, such as um, paying a certain deposit as uh, as is required, etc. Then paying some sort of certain costs to the agency who helped me to find it. But I came, I discovered about a year and a half later that these costs were illegal and they weren't up to me to, to pay um, they weren't for the tenant the new tenant to pay but for the landlord basically and this got me digging a little bit and I realized how preponderant of a market it was for these illegal estate agency fees in,
0: in 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 other words i mean just uh correct me if i'm wrong but in other words you would you agree you know the there was uh, an issue with the supply and demand there was just oh, yeah. not 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 nearly enough housing and uh, an abundance of exactly. an abundance of um, expat students yeah you know, de- de- desperate for a place to live when when they were going to school, and so you and me observed uh, during that time some of the shady business dealings that were going down. Um, There's a whole market of uh, of people taking advantage of that.
1: No, definitely, yeah. Situation. Yeah, that's exa- That's exactly what it was. It was an extremely abusive situation, not just for myself but for many people, and not just in Uthrat and people we know, but in general for especially internationals coming to study in the Netherlands and trying to find a place on this brutal housing market being exploited and scammed. The word scammed is a, is a, is a good one to use because it takes different, different forms. Um, worst case scenario, you end up losing, how do you say hundreds, perhaps even in the low thousands of euros to uh, a fake address, someone who doesn't exist. It was all an online scam. In best case scenario, you get a place, you get the keys to it, but you way paid the price or you paid costs that you shouldn't have even paid in the first place. And this is what basically was my um, my subject of my um, paper when I came to Groninger after my bachelor's thesis. I saw this market and I realized that I thought to myself, how is this such a big problem in a country as the Netherlands, which has I mean, you've also lived here, you know what, what, I'm, what I'll be referring to, but with so many laws where you can see that it's, uh, everything seems to have a certain law, there seems to be something in place to avoid or to prevent certain things from happening, yeah, this practice is rife no matter where you go into the larger student cities. And that's why I started to think myself, okay, first of all, is it that big of a problem from what I've heard from friends and uh, other friends of friends, etc. And the second thing I want to understand is how do they get away with it? How do they be able to do this? And um, that led to my first, well, actually, I think I had uh, two papers, um, two papers which were to do with uh, rogue landlords. The first one was rogue landlords itself. The second one was more on these estate agencies. Um, So to focus more on the estate agencies, it was to be about how do they go about charging these fees uh, and getting away with it, as I just mentioned.
0: Just as a shameless plug, I'll link uh, details in the show notes, but we're referring to... um, uh, the article published in Journal of Property Planning and Environmental exactly. Law. Yeah. Uh, your your first paper tackling rogue landlords and substandard housing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's important, I think, to just you know reiterate this these ideas you were um you, you mentioned your bachelor's i think you meant to say your your master's thesis in in learning about um the market yeah but exactly. did you do a, a bat did you do a bachelor's thesis in your undergraduate studies
1: yeah in france i did yeah and it wasn't on as i said i was in sociology so this was more on um online games and how can online gaming lead to creating quote-unquote durable social contacts so can people just by playing online games make friends and have uh, friendships or relations that last uh, throughout time and don't just last the time that people spend online. So it was um, a bit of a slightly different topic. It wasn't very criminal unless it was on some sort of a uh, Grand Theft Auto or certain other games.
0: Or, or some deviant. Um, I, it's making me think of uh, my interest in social media. And lately I've been chatting with uh, folks on the show. Uh, I think I've decided I'm going to try to infiltrate a Reddit subgroup uh, oh, subreddit man. group, and, and see if I can invite someone from the incel community onto oh, yeah. the uh, onto the Rex Crim show, and it's sort of relating to your sociological interest in uh, in subculture, and um, um, what I want to hammer home is this idea of criminology not being a uh, a you know a, a great notion of mm. murder and um, no. you know these seductive cases necessarily. No, I think there's something to be said about the sociology of daily life and uh, hammering home your common interests in your your research with things that that were relatable, but clearly impacting uh, people disproportionately. I mean, if you had been Dutch um, in the Netherlands during the MA program, you probably wouldn't have... Had your eyes open to this issue, none of the none of our Dutch friends would have tolerated any of that nonsense. It was only no. for expats, you know, that were there, that the market could uh, take advantage of them in that way. And in the same way, you were able to deliver uh, a perspective uh, for for the local Dutch authorities that had probably no um, idea of this of these inner workings. You were able to showcase in your research practical examples of, of how the system is failing in order to yeah. I believe affect policy what is some of the good that's come as a result of your publication
1: um I'm publications oh if I'm from completely honest I would say good I'm not sure if there is much good quote-unquote that came uh, out of it apart from uh, it granted me a uh, a job where I am today so that's something that I'm uh, very pleased with um but I would say hopefully it does have an effect in even if it doesn't I don't believe that the research in itself will be read by someone who will think this is a fantastic idea. Let's go and implement it. I don't have, I don't see that happening or so to say, but um, I do hope that it kind of goes into fueling this sort of um, trends that we can see emerging of trying to make um, the law more embedded within society and more embedded within social reality. Uh, so we can take these certain laws. And what I did in the paper, as you mentioned uh, with my supervisor, my boss at the time, uh, is we looked into what the law says, and then we all see the effects of the law. Is it effective, yes or no? And when we saw that it wasn't effective, we said, why isn't this the case? And then we asked ourselves to conclude the question, how could we therefore make this effective? or What we, could we do instead of proposing a new law, for example, as is often done, what could we do in regards to enforcement to make sure that these laws work as they should. And the reason why we came to that idea is because there were so many of these laws and it was such a highly regulated um, market, the housing, when it comes to safety, when it comes to costs, etc. yet we see that the law was broken. I mean, in one of the pieces that I wrote, the second article, I discovered that was 70% of uh, estate agencies in the country um, partake in these illegal, illegal costs. And you have to think that 70% charging these costs on a national scale that's millions, at least, of euros, and these were findings that were later confirmed by the, um, the Dutch uh, Authority for Markets and Consumers, basically. So, uh, kind of a market watchdog that's, a, I think it's an NGO run by the government, but they found similar findings. So, it was basically looking into how can we take the law, all these, um, these legal provisions, and make them more effective, quote unquote, or make sure that they're more um, you say that they translate into the into practice more efficiently and they actually do what they set out to do ultimately
0: i uh, i wonder if you're interested in taking a, a break at all or shall we just continue on through sometimes when i chat with my other friends they're sipping on a beer and they've got to take a pee break or i don't know if you're rolling a cigarette or something there i will
1: just go for that i'm just going to go to the toilet quickly and then i'm just going to fill up my glass of water
0: we'll, we'll be right back
1: you twisted my arm mike i decided to uh it's monday mondays are never fun so i grab a beer instead i mean it's it might be morning for you but it's uh it's evening here so i decided it's uh it's socially acceptable now
0: yeah very good i could uh i might join you myself it's uh just about five o'clock uh, almost on my <laughs> my uh side of things but i've been celebrating my lovely um lady's birthday oh, and, um, and valentine's day all in one as it so happens it's a holiday here today uh, in Ontario we celebrate family oh, nice. day so we, it's been a celebrate we've been enjoying all weekend it's been um, sipping on good food and uh, drink uh, the last 72 hours or so
1: Oh uh, you, you you're not in the mood for a beer even then it's not even uh, it's not even on the agenda for you then
0: well, I haven't been out for my run today so I haven't exactly earned it but uh, if I <laughs> if I enjoy a pint in your company it'll perhaps l- help me better reminisce uh, some of our great times. I want to, I want to move on from, you know, Uttar University and our time together in grad school, but by all means feel free uh, to, uh, to include if you can think of any, any uh, stories or good times to give context. Yeah, Anecdotes from our study trips or, you know, transnational experiences. I know know we had a great, uh, you know, we could, we could do a whole episode just on our great time in, um, in Budapest, together uh and uh, where else did we travel
1: we could make it into a bloopers episode if you wanted to do that you can just uh talk about all the uh how do you say innuendos that popped up on specific trips and uh the jokes that were made at a uh, how do you say various people's expenses not in a mean way but uh for the sakes of a uh, few
0: it was all part of the uh the learning experience and um i'll tell you going going uh, to the netherlands to do grad school relocating there for a while it sure did open my eyes to uh, to the the real workings of crime and um oh, yeah. anyway so we'll we'll come back to that maybe at, at some point but mm-hmm. we, we've talked about your work uh to date um you know tackling rogue land landlords navigating yeah. Latin, the uh, the dutch estate agencies and um mm-hmm. maybe help us understand what your daily life looks like now as a what is phd life like in the netherlands uh, during the pandemic you're working exclusively from mm-hmm. home
1: Yeah, at the moment, um, I'm working exclusively from home, and that's due to corona. Usually, um, I would go at least, um, how do you say, four, five days to the office before pre-corona, but now things look a lot different, so it's basically um, going up to the office, which is uh, next to the bedroom, so uh, at least I don't have the travel time anymore, so that's good. But um, life in a PhD student in the Netherlands is fantastic in the sense that you work held for, well, mostly depending on, uh, I won't go into the kinks, but it, there's uh, different regimes basically, but uh, overall d- PhD life in the Netherlands is uh, fantastic. I would say it's almost as great as being a master student in Utrecht. Uh, it's not quite as good, and I look back to that as being the, the most fondest part of my uh, whole academic career to date. That was by far the time where I had the most fun, that was the most eye-opening for me, both socially and uh intellectually we could say um tilt t- to date or so to say but um phd life now is kind of ground to a halt where we are with corona um as i'm sure it has everywhere so i, sh- I
0: should highlight that um your your reference of the pandemic is not uh not alluding to the type of beer that you're drinking currently
1: <laughs> no exactly yeah unfortunately not if not it would be uh how do you say that, that was more my bachelor's uh, years. The uh, pandemic locking you at home and uh, meaning you could only go as far as your uh, your office to be able to do anything
0: mm. i mean to say you're not drinking uh, corona with lime at the moment <laughs> no,
1: also not unfortunately not it's uh, it's dutch beer which i can't complain it's uh it's decent so it's not a uh, it's not like the stuff we have in france no offense
0: right right well i um i'm trying to make sense of some of some terms that i see in your more recent publications um mm-hmm. maybe you can help help us understand um, some of your current work and the ideas of yeah. uh, polit- politicization and uh, i believe glocalization.
1: yeah it's something that it's um, that i was going to bring up earlier but i slipped my mind is that my background to date in academia has been quite eclectic or so to say it hasn't been very much it hasn't been a straight line from I started studying something specific, and I've kind of stayed on this whole, the same track since then. Excuse me. Um, basically, I started off, as you mentioned earlier, with my master's in criminology, looking into cannabis markets and more drugs, illicit substances, the law enforcement response to it. And then when I got my first um, uh, job at the University of Groningen, for moving from Utrecht to Groningen, I looked more into the legal side. So I was very much working in a law faculty as the only criminologist who was there at the time, at least in my department. Um, so I was looking into more legal side and how can we make the law, as I just mentioned, more um, more linked to actually to the actual things that were happening in society or make it more um, socially friendly, we could say, so more more embedded within reality. Uh, and now I've moved on afterwards from to Campus Freesome, which I mentioned at the beginning, which is where I'm studying now. I work for uh, the chair group of global and local governance. And my PhD is more specifically focused on the topic of the politicization of senior civil servants. So it's quite a mouthful, but uh, simply put, it's looking into um, how politics sort of is encroaching into the business of uh, administration. So into the civil service, basically, or to what we call the bureaucracy. So the individuals or those cogs who are behind the, who are behind the curtains or so to speak of government, making sure that the politically elected will is basically trans, uh, transferred into implementable um, policies basically, and that that's done properly in a manner that is based within, upon expertise.
0: Do you think there was a period that you were sort of being tested by your supervisor? Um, uh, in other words, do you think that your first work was in a way demonstrating the potential for for criminology. Was there a bit of selling that you had to do in in sort of um, bringing front of mind this sort of criminological imagination for for those uh, yeah of, of your colleagues who are in the the legal
1: side of things. So yeah, just to clarify, the the department I work in now is no longer the law faculty, so I don't work as much with uh, with lawyers so much. I work more with a much more interdisciplinary team, or so to say. But when it comes more specifically to my work now, my supervisor, I mean, I I would have to say that there was to a certain degree. I wasn't hired as a criminologist or so to say in this capacity before I got my Ph.D. with the supervisor I'm with now. I worked as a junior researcher for him for a period of eight months on a specific project that he already had gained through a, a grant offered by the Dutch University. And that was entitled Patterns of Politicization. So, basically, how can we identify uh, different traits within different political systems, which may translate to more politicizations, So, more and more encroachment of politics into um, bureaucracy, or so to speak. And having worked on this project with him, mostly on assisting with conducting research, so I got to go to Ireland, to Norway, to Spain, to different countries to conduct interviews with. Um, civil servants who were in the top three echelons of uh, respective ministries. Um, it was then that I was offered a PhD, which was on a topic similar to the research. And if I'm honest, to answer your question, there were, I wouldn't say heads butted at all. Not, I wouldn't say that was, that's not the correct term, but I would say that when I arrived, when I was conducting this research as a junior researcher, I was studying a certain phenomenon that was completely new to me and as an outsider. And I realized when I had to brush up pretty fast on the literature and everything that had been done on the topic, that what I was reading compared to what I was hearing uh, from these interviews didn't always match, basically. And then I was kind of thinking back to um, my career, well, career is a big word, but how do you say what I'd been exposed to in criminology and in a more um, employing more ethnographic methods, for example, um, and different theories that come with it um, to do with why people. Engage in certain acts, I saw these parallels that I could import from criminology to this field. And this is why I thought if we could incorporate this field with sociology, criminology, this topic more specifically, I'm sure we could shed a lot of light on the matter um, instead of leaving it how it is now and continuing to study it as it is. So at first, I had to make sure that I wasn't confronting anyone by saying everything you've done so far is great, but you're not doing it properly. So that's not at all the case, but I wanted to, I basically came as an outsider and said, listen, I've seen everything that's happened so far. It's fantastic. I think maybe if we look at it from this side or we incorporate, um, facets from a different side, maybe we could shine some more light upon it. And that was something that I had to, um, I wouldn't say sell, but I had to basically um, present to my supervisor and see if he would be on board with it. And, um, I can't fault him. I was very lucky that it was accepted without too many issues, without too many caveats from the very beginning. And then I get a lot of freedom to work on this project, however I see fit. And I um, mostly only receive support from uh, from both supervisors rather than, um, how do you say, any red tape or anything like that. And anything that we've been doing in works together so far, they've given me more than sufficient room to kind of add this criminological stance, which I kind of still try to disguise a little bit as being more management sciences or sociology without labelling everything criminology because i've come to discover that if you always play the criminology card when you're not surrounded by criminologists sometimes it can be a bit annoying Mm -hmm. especially when they don't understand exactly what criminology is all the time which ties back very well to your whole podcast what is criminology and how is it perceived
0: you uh, I, I want to just touch on this idea of ethnography that you're alluding to and and then we can get into the seductive side of crimes but keep mm. the pun keep the puns coming you referred to yourself as an outsider I think and uh, <laughs> um, you know the the references uh, for anyone keen on on criminological literature uh, seem endless in this uh, conversation but just clarify what you mean when you say ethnographic studies or you know what is ethnography
1: so ethnography is basically the um way of studying of conducting research where you involve yourself with your target group um or perhaps involve isn't the correct word but where you get close to your target group empirically uh, in practice or so to say so if i were to say for today i decided i wanted to do conduct a study on let's say, uh, heroin users in Toronto, I could very much start doing research behind my computer by looking up documentaries, by getting into contact with uh, people who've written on the matter or people who work on uh, social work in Canada, for example. I could look into various aspects. I could even perhaps conduct interviews, but ethnography would really be going there in person and trying to observe certain phenomena by myself from practice kind of trying to make sense of what I've being seen and to understand how certain practices happen, um, in practice.
0: And, and this idea of why they happen, indeed, this idea of Verstehen again ties in with the concept of, you know, having an emphatic appreciation for knowing the inside perspective.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And when I talk, when I, when I speak with, um, when I speak with, you know, folks I know who are involved in government and, um, you know, it really resonates with me what you say, this idea of red tape and fighting uh, an uphill battle that is bureaucracy. The difference between, you know, trying to uh, ch- achieve um, an outcome and uh, and the the processes that get in the way. Uh, sometimes it seems like the the objective is lost on account of, pro- you know, the, just doing things the way that they were done. And oh, I think yeah. you, you experienced a lot of that. Um, Status quo bias—it's a difficult thing to 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 change someone's mind uh, when they're familiar with doing something a certain way.
1: Uh, yeah, I would say we're also guilty of ourselves as criminologists, for uh, especially as critical criminologists. I mean, the uh, I've tried not to, but when I usually talk about mainstream criminology, I tend to uh, uh implicitly and perhaps even unconsciously be a bit condescending about the field, and that's one of the uh, the issues. But I completely agree—we have these certain status quos and. Uh, Stereotypes, which uh, even if we try to to look at them or to uh, comprehend them or control them, quote unquote, it's not always um, it's not as easy as said as, as set, said as done. Pretty much. So,
0: do you think, since studying criminology, your your diet of uh, information, the things that you like to watch on Netflix or Crave or whatever you subscribe to, has uh, has changed? Um, in other words, you know, what true crime are you into and or, or not into and why?
1: Criminology destroyed Netflix for me. No, I'm joking. Not not at all. Uh, basically, what I would say is it's uh, it's made what. What do, you rec-
0: what do you recommend? You know, what are you watching uh, without too many spoiler okay. alerts? Okay,
1: what I would recommend, what I would definitely recommend is to get a good idea of what criminology actually is, or, or to to correct that actually, what is critical criminology? Without a doubt, Mindhunter. For those of you who have heard of it, it's a, a two series, I think it is, but it's basically on. Uh, without spoiling anything, serial killers, the FBI, and this whole idea of trying to understand how the the mind of a serial killer works. And that one I would definitely recommend as being the most, how do you say, loyal to actually what critical criminology um, looks into, or so to say.
0: This was the... uh... I mean, I'm sure there's many people who must be familiar, but I, it's it's about the beginning of profiling in the 1970s with exactly. the FBI. And uh, I agree. I, I actually didn't much care for the second season. I found it kind of slow and was disappointed when it uh, didn't pan out, but I was enthralled with mm. the the writing and um, the references. I think they were talking, you know, about uh, Durkheim. Neil Durkheim's yeah. uh, theory, um, you know, uh, touching on a variety of, of things. And of course, you know, hitting on all, all the nitty gritty and whilst incorporating uh, true interviews and dialogue from uh, from from these um,
1: ostensibly psychopathic yeah. or sociopathic types of folks. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I have to say that Hunter is probably one of the best shows if you want to get an idea of what happens in critical criminology. But if I have to be honest, and it hurts myself to say it, But the whole, the other TV shows, although they're not really as, how do you say, they don't represent or they don't depict what critical criminology actually is. It kind of uh, has a certain representation where people think this is what critical criminology is, the crime scene investigation effect, as you said at the beginning. But that just sells, Mike. That's just, that those shows, I'm not sure if you've ever had it on a Sunday afternoon where there's nothing on TV, and all of a sudden you fall upon these shows and you spend four hours, well, maybe not, but three hours binge-watching them. As a criminologist, I know that a lot of it is extremely mistrewed, for example, but it doesn't take away the fact that they're still fantastic in certain regards.
0: Yeah, we do have a... Um, there's sort of a cult, a cultural appetite at play yeah. that uh, is always interested in... The, it's a bit voyeuristic, and it's always interested in, um, in a little more nitty-gritty, um, you know, the, what are the what are the, what are the details of wrongdoing? And it seems in a way easier to point the finger uh, to some other um, terrible person um, there, thereby mitigating our own responsibility in in this situation. But isn't it sort of ironic that we find ourselves, you know, celebrating these atrocities (laughs) in a way while also kind of getting off on, on it by subscribing to whatever new episode is released, um, you know, just thereby bringing us a, a step further or a step closer to the depravity and maybe further from a, <laughs> from a, a critical look at what's really going on. I mean,
1: I, I can't, con- I can't contradict you. Cause then I'd be a hypocrite myself. As I said at the beginning, this is one of the reasons why I think I went to criminology. I was so enthralled with crime and all these different facades of it, that that's what, but not daring to do it myself. That really, uh, Attracted me to it and that's only when I started studying that I realized. Oh, it's quite different to what I see in the TV shows but when I think about it I Kind of understand why this mainstream criminology, which is more which how do you say which? Represents basically these TV shows a lot more loyally or looks a lot more like these TV shows I understand why these are more so on TV or more so um, how do you say main TV shows or films or whatever than critical criminology because it's more sexy or something to say mm-hmm. i mean it's you often get how do you say um single cause answers to something for example serial killer so we have to hunt down this serial killer he's evil a lot of the time but then we'll put a little twist oh maybe he isn't evil he's misunderstood and that's about as far as it will go and then you kind of find with critical criminology that we can't give clear answers to to things all the time answers always have a certain caveats to them or there's nuance all there's multiple facades to it for example uh, and I'm not saying mainstream criminology doesn't do that but I would say that for example if we were to look at crime for example such as a murder it's how do you say it grabs your attention it's sexy or so to say um, whereas if we were to look at um, how could we say I'm trying to find something now why could graffiti artists decide to conduct certain um, practices within their local community I mean that doesn't it's not going to make as great a TV show as, how do you say, Narcos, for example, or to looking to certain aspects, which is about the guns and the money and the transport and the corruption, for example, as to understanding why does do certain groups decide to go steal cars and joyride, for example. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. And- for
0: me, it has to do with always coming back to trying to calibrate um, this this reconciliation between structure and agency. So on, you know, in the case of Mindhunter and looking at, you know, the serial killer, I agree that the true crime idea, the mainstream orthodox majority perspective on criminology has to do with, you know, who is the individual, why have they done wrongdoing? Mm -hmm. And um, what is the response to that, specific type of wrongdoing and then perhaps even making a typology of types of wrongdoing yeah. and categories and, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, there are tools that come as a result of trying to quantify types of behavior, you know, psychopathy, as I mentioned earlier, Robert Hare was uh, a Canadian and he was the one who developed uh, the, the checklist. Yeah. I think if mine h- Hunter had gone on, that would have been uh, certainly they would have been remiss to not um touch on on uh, on on that science specifically but um but certainly many of the attributes of psychopathy were there in in the characters of uh of the show but i think what this show does unlike or how it breaks the mold in a way is it causes the the viewer to think a little bit outside of the box and you know realize as uh, one of the main characters does holden uh, sorts sort of emp- begins to empathize with yeah. these folks, and it makes you realize when you contend with circumstance and uh, context, yeah. actually, you know, they're products of the environment in which they they have they had uh, grown up. Yeah, and um, I think it's dangerous to just stick with the The idea of a, of a true psychopath, uh, because it removes us from the idea that you know perhaps psychopaths are are not just born that way; they're made that way exactly. as a result of their traumatic upbringing. Uh, in some cases, or some perhaps some people are just bad. But now I'm rambling. Um, for me, though, uh, I think where you and I agree is there is this important need to problematize the environment and the circumstances around. You know what's known as as criminal or or
1: bad no yeah and i wish i could articulate myself as well as you do because when i listen to myself i feel like i'm rambling and there's certain points that i am completely construing and um saying a lot of inaccuracies but i would say that's partly the whole the what the word, what what critical in critical criminology means it's to be to critique to not take things for granted to kind of question uh, I wouldn't say everything but to, to question as much as possible the status quo and I would say if I don't look towards Netflix shows because I have to say a lot of them they're doing a, a very good job at kind of moving away from these sort of givens that we come to assume in society as Mindhunter does it expertly but I mean if you just turn on uh, a television uh, how do you say one of these tv channels which is based on true crime documentaries throughout the day it's insane the amount of TV shows which you see with titles such as, um, just turn it off my head, for example, Extreme Evil, and all of a sudden this person is a serial killer or a killer or whatever, uh, and therefore he is evil or she is evil, for example, and that's where it starts off from. This person did this act. They murdered someone or they murdered multiple people, and therefore they are evil. I'm not saying that they're not evil or whatever. Of course, what they did is is horrific, but it's just the fact that they get this label, and then we move on from there to say, this is a horrible person. They do not deserve to be labeled a human, and it moves on from there without seeking, how did it get to this? Can we call these people evil, or should we try to understand their background, as you said, and see how it happened. And perhaps instead of just labeling them as evil and throwing them away, perhaps we could do something more productive and um, for them and for society by trying to understand why this happened, how it came about, and um,
0: where 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 is this where is the responsibility in all of this? You know, I, yeah. I think I always come back to this idea, especially looking at crime media, which is something I have a keen interest in mm-hmm. and which leads me to another question I want to ask you. But uh, generally, you know, in the U.S., um, oh, well, I've lost my train of thought.
1: That's my fault. Sorry.
0: No, no, it's it's come back to me. It's come back to me now, this idea that there's always um, a mistaken or misguided um part of the conversation focused on individual rights, you know, my rights, but there's a lack of conversation on, uh, on, you know, the yin and the yang to that, which is responsibility. And, um, and so I just to reiterate this idea for, for me, and I think you'll agree, it has to do with, um, you know, critical criminology was born out of the need to recalibrate orthodox criminology, which looked at the individual and rather problematize the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And in each of these examples of, uh, of, of deviant or, or wrongdoing types of situations or individuals, it's always a matter of questioning, you know, Am I a little bit? Where is my bias? Is it too focused, perhaps, on the individualistic yep. perspective, the agency of the person, and if so, bring it back to the circumstances and vice versa? It's this calibration and trying to to bring um, to make it. Perhaps that's where objectivity comes in versus subjectivity. But uh, here's a subjective question for you, mm-hmm. um, tying in with my MA thesis a little bit, but uh, you know, specifically regarding deviant types. I mean, I did my work on uh, pedophiles when I was in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I you know, I interviewed folks who identified as minor attracted. And I wrote a thesis on the topic of, um, you know, this criminological identity yeah. that we that I thought at the time was interesting while looking at movies and TV shows. And I wonder if you have this sense um, or is it just me that lately I'm hearing a lot more about um, this sort of demonization lately it seems you know there's as a result maybe of cancel culture or just the the world that we're in do you have this sense that there's there seems to be more finger pointing and more concern over the over the existence of pedophiles or that that that's a term that's more Uh, loosely thrown around on the internet these days or um, what's your take on that
1: i don't know if particularly about pedophiles in particular for example pedophilia i don't know if this is perhaps this is something that you're more seeing over in uh in the North in North America, for example, but over here, it's not something I've particularly been confronted to, um, sort of similar to demonization or this labeling, or so to say, I would say that we have seen a trend, and this is something I touch upon in my current research on politics and in the course I teach to students, that we now see that now people are labeled more and there's only will be more and more polarized so we have more camps either you're this or you're or you're not either you're this or you're the opposite and this is something that I do see if we look into i mean the 2020 uh, US election was a prime example either you're a trump supporter or you're a biden supporter and there's no room anymore to be in the middle if you're not one then you're the enemy mm-hmm. i mean that's stereotyping a lot but in in general trends we can see this has very much real uh, consequences and it's um it plays out in a lot of, of different arenas and uh, dynamics but I would say that yeah definitely when it comes towards labeling and demonizing i mean it's just a um how would you say it's kind of a, a symptom of um, of this of, of the times we're living in now and I don't know if it's been sort of emphasized more and more with the pandemic and people closing in to their own little bubbles social media more and more mm-hmm. which has their own <laughs> bubbles and um, you can only speak with how do you say have contact with specific groups of uh, of peers or so to say and it's kind of emphasizing it or if there's no relation between it mm-hmm. but yeah i'm not sure but i would say that this is something that's like friends
0: or so to say. Not to linger on the topic of um, of pedophiles specifically. I make the distinction uh, between, you know, the oriented Always <laughs> with
1: pedophiles.
0: Well, it's funny, you know, that I find myself now working uh, as sort of an agent uh, uh, in a non-specified role within the criminal justice system you know, mm-hmm. where I'm dealing with, um, um, you know, uh, such types of offenders, you know, people, but what I, people who have have done wrong or that, uh, you know, um, that are, um, I mean, I think we're all guilty of something. I think we've all done, we've all transgressed and it's important to highlight the area where we have commonality. It's not so simple as calling um, someone, you know, that label, that thing uh where am i going with this ultimately that i'm not surprised you don't hear much of it um uh, on on the topic of pedophiles in the netherlands because you know much of the reason i was able to do that research at the time is because of the great deal of tolerance Mm -hmm. uh, found in dutch society so um i don't think i could have done that research anywhere else but i i did interview sort of minor attracted all were men and uh, they all sort of had adopted this this label and this identity. Yeah, so I think it's important to put the distinction between, you know, the person who sees themselves or could, you know, rather uh, unwillingly be labeled as a pedophile versus, you know, the orientation of those who find themselves attracted to minors which w- seems like a, a a strange plight to find yourself in but sort of ironic one of the findings in my work was this you know, so not to conflate the identity of a pedophile versus the orientation, mm-hmm. but I just, I find it so interesting being a, a, a dare I say, a scholar of crime media that we live in a time when we seem to relish the occasion where we hear stories about such wrongdoing and at the same time, you know, seem to infantilize women through advertisement campaigns, make them look younger and whatnot, yeah. while, while at the same time sexualizing Young girls, and and so this whole problematizing of the circumstances really makes me question uh, how it is so easy to point the finger and call people, you know, such an awful. I mean, what what is what a terrible, uh, stigmatic role? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't thank anyone for for that title myself. But no, of um, course.
1: I think I think what you've just said now very well emphasizes what we were talking about earlier: the role of stigma. For example, and for example, if we could say. Especially the word pedophile, it kind of conjures up in our so in our conscious this idea of of ultimate evil of someone who's only out to commit harm, who uh, steals innocence, who is violent in different ways, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I would say, even as criminologists, I remember very well when you were starting to talk to to study this certain project. The first reflection is, wow, that's that's a that's a heavy subject to to delve into. Pedophilia, for example. And then I kind of realize, well, not myself, but how do you say, multiple people. The more that we talk to to yourself, who studied such a subject, or if you look into the literature on such a subject, it doesn't at all condemn pedophilia, and that's great for a lot of for a lot of reasons. Or so to, to say, um, but what it does sort of show is that we kind of have these these constructions in our mind, these certain social constructs, these stereotypes about what it is and how it should be. Uh, perceived and it should be something we should we, sh- we should be disgusted by or so to speak mm-hmm. and that's where you can see the power basically of social constructs and how it comes on and how even if you try to avoid them as us as criminologists as i said when we first heard your subject even us who've studied this a lot of us were sort of like oh okay that's a that's a heavy subject to be touching upon that's where you realize the power of, uh, of these stereotypes. And um, I mean, I'm not saying that they're false. Or I'm not saying that they're true. I'm saying there's truth and there's uh, exaggeration in all of them.
0: Take the time to, you know, to better understand. I mean, I recall uh, feeling very uncomfortable telling people about the nature uh, of what I was studying just because I, I didn't want the stigma attached to me, you know, but, but I found it interesting nonetheless. And I think this is a great example of what we're, what you're touching on this, um idea of labeling um demonization uh, which is common in 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 populist perceptions of crime yeah and and so so i want to linger on this subject of polarization and the need these days to have sort of a straight shooter someone who's going to sort of take the bulls by the horn and tell you the honest truth show you what's right and wrong Mm -hmm. and sort of make make it easily black and white i think of the, the recent uh um, US president that seems to have fallen from grace for some, but others, uh, you know, love a great deal. But those politics are being seen all around the world. And um, yeah. there's not a lot of ambiguity there. It's it's simple. It's black and white and it gives people some sense of security. Yeah, uh, of what is your what is your what is your thought on that, bearing in mind that I'm 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 mindful of your time and I want to sort of go into this idea of what a what a kingpin criminologist um might do or what kingpin criminology um means in your mind when you hear that term
1: i mean well on a side note don't worry about the time i'm more than happy to stay as long as uh, as you were uh, you would be uh, willing to host me here of course so uh, i only just mm-hmm. cracked open the beer so i've got plenty of time uh, if you want to keep hearing me rambling but um i would first of all say that it doesn't surprise me these sort of what you're either in the in camp or you're not in our camp so to say because it just makes things so much easier it makes things simple it makes us feel secure knowing that the people we are around feel the same way and think the same things as us or so to say and when you look back into multiple dynamics of everyday life over the past how do you say decades I mean it gives a certain stability I mean how do you say we're, we're not at the, the, the age of our parents i mean we're just in the, our late 20s 30s that sort of age for example with the millennials also to say but if you look at what we've been through so far in greater societal changes we've been to different economic crises uh we've seen different dynamics that come with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer etc but we see a housing market and strives to get financial and economic stability, which become more less and less attainable, so to say. So when you can sort of shut out certain of these challenges and certain of these, well, it's not that simple sort of uh, elements that pop up or, or, or on your path. And it's just a lot easier to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to go for this because it's comfortable and it's stable. And also, on the other hand of it, it also gives you an enemy, quote unquote, a target to direct this sort of frustrations, all these issues at. I mean, it's a lot easier to put all the all your frustrations and your, how do you say, your your stress and your annoyances or whatever you want to call them, into this one specific target and point the finger at them. And uh, I would say that's, that's a dynamic we not just see with the everyday Joe, or so to say, but we unfortunately see in politics and an scapegoating that comes in international politics nowadays which isn't new of course but i would say that either it has to become amplified or it seems to be more amplified because of these echo chambers we now live in
0: yeah i'm glad you brought up the idea of echo chambers and uh you know the way that we're engaging in media these days crime uh, crime media specifically but social media and uh, and the 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 medium of algorithmic you know mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of being um we're, we're constantly being informed by a certain algorithm and that algorithm is being informed by us. And yeah. uh, there are these echo chambers and feedback loops that are happening, which make people who are inclined to say um, extreme evil is,
1: you know, exists. Uh, you use the, the air w- quotes just for your listeners. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I witnessed your air quotes. Yeah. I mean,
0: I guess what I'm trying to say is we're, we're finding ourselves in camps and those camps are, are, are constantly being, um, Pushed and polarized to to different ends and different perspectives. So I guess in yeah. my mind that's what a, that's what um, I guess the kingpin criminology, which is still new in my mind, it has to do with may while making crime accessible and and consumable and interesting, like through a podcast. It's also you know working towards calibrating um, the objectivity of of what's happening. You know, are we focusing on on the individual too much, or are we focusing on the circumstances too much? And, and and it, it leads me to ask the questions, you know, regarding pedophiles, um, you know, is redemption possible Uh for, for, for those who are, you know, who are extreme evil, Um, you know, can, can such thing, such, uh, such, um, you know, reprehensible um, activities be, be uh, rehabilitated or not. Um, but on the other flip side of things, it's like, are are the circumstances of meaning-making about crime permeable, or yeah. are, are they static?
1: I, I would definitely, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, because we talk about lots of different things and lots of different topics, but I would say that the meaning-makings of crime or what we decide is criminal or unacceptable is constantly evolving, and it will continue to evolve. I mean, you just have to look back 10 years ago, and this whole rhetoric on cannabis um, or drugs in general, it was almost unfathomable that drugs such as ecstasy would become, uh, well, they're not becoming legalised, but more and more tolerated. For example, um, you would also see. I mean, that's not everywhere. I, I mean, we have to re-emphasise that this is very much on a on a Western world perspective, because in certain other places on earth, it's not it's not at all the case. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say this is, this is a trend that is constantly evolving. I mean, when you talk about pedophilia, if you look into the ancient Greeks, I believe that pedophilia was accepted in, in certain so- social circles or in certain circles in general of society. I might be, correct me if I'm wrong, you really expert.
0: I, no, indeed. I mean, I think you're you're describing a cultural norm that yeah. was uh, not nearly as problematic as it is today. Now there's, you know, I mean, let's be abs- abundantly clear. I mean, I need to be, to, to re- Uh, state perhaps or or to be explicit about the fact that i'm not condoning any form of um abuse here child sex abuse or anything like that rather rather what i'm trying to do is you know problematize the circumstances in which that abuse happens and uh as you point out with critical criminology, you know, try to uh, interrogate the circumstances, which, which allow it to happen. Yeah. And therefore I, you know, I really want to highlight that um, I didn't talk much about the, you know, the pathology that would be in the DSM yeah. um, under pedophilia uh, specifically, I was interested in the icon, uh, you know, the iconography of, of pedophiles everywhere yeah. a sort of idea of an archetype, you know, an archetype, um, you know, example of extreme evil, as you say, a perfect, a quintessential example of of someone that we demonize every, you know, very easily. But but actually, when you look deeply into it, as I did in my MA, you realize these are just folks with stories who could actually best inform the policies around uh, child welfare.
1: Oh, yeah, of course, definitely. And as you just touched upon yourself, I think that's where the, true job of critical criminologists what their true job comes down to basically it's kind of trying to take a step back from the status quo of different things we see so far and saying how did these come to being what do they look like today and are these structures working or i wouldn't say correct because it's very difficult but what are the effects of such structures or such overarching um can't think of the word now but such overarching entities and the war on drugs i keep talking about drugs because i truly love drug research and i don't do enough of it nowadays but um the war on drugs is a perfect one and the stereotypical one that we've talked about but to to remain on a more theoretical level or a bit more of an abstract level i'd say this is something that i've i understood correctly what the king the kingpin criminologist is trying to do so to say is how do we incorporate this mantra of critical criminology and translate it into something that's edible and consumable for the everyday listener, in the case of your podcast, or the everyday consumer to understand that criminology isn't just about chasing down the bad guys, but it's also about understanding how we, with society, um, uh, how we interpret crime and how we perceive it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, if you look at the kingpin, um, I, the, the definition, I mean, it's a central sort of um, pin that an axis goes around. It's a crux. Like
1: godfather.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, that's a, a more figurative. Uh, yeah, I, I could go by godfather as well. But I, I mean, mechanically, I'm talking about the actual pin that's used centrally as a as sort of an axis for something to revolve around. And I mean, it's yeah. sort of central to this idea, the crux if you will, of, uh, of kingpin criminology, I guess has to do with, um, you know, constantly being reflexive, and and constantly evaluating oneself in their circumstances and their own bias and prejudices, especially while focused on the type, you know, your diet of information and uh, how you engage with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So and that's what I think, this podcast is about. And, um, you know, hopefully it's a, a bit of um meaning making and and means of growing personally for me, but for anyone else that that wants to have a deeper understanding of um how crime comes to be and and the meaning behind it. Uh, it's a um it's a new way of sort of philosophizing contemporary, contemporary day-to-day life.
1: I know it's, and I think it's definitely, I don't know if I could say. A noble cause. I don't know if that would be too flattering for you or if it's uh, <laughs> if you just disagree with it. I think it's definitely something that is needed also to say or something that would be beneficial. Maybe "needed" is too strong of a word. But I don't think there's any bad or wrong that can come from it trying to so My
0: fear, the, the one thing that I do have concern about is it becoming subverted. You know, I, I see the irony that is uh, trying to problematize the amount of consumable material on crime while at the same time saying subscribe to my episodes Each week,
1: I mean, I mean, this is something that I was going to say. I mean, just reflecting upon how I've been talking, speaking, or we've been conversing this evening, I mean, I've just been like, how do you say, a bumblebee bashing buffer forwards into upper backwards and back and forth, sorry, into different topics and different themes. One point we're talking criminology, then anecdotes, etc. And it's the exact same thing when it comes into the substance matter of criminology. I mean, where do you start? Where do you go into? We can talk about theories for hours. We can talk about details of theories for hours. We can talk about methods. I mean, you mentioned ethnography earlier, et cetera. And then, how do you translate into that that something is appealing to um, to, to everyone or to, uh, to to the mass public, to, to the to the public, or so to say, um, without getting into something that may only be interesting to the academic or to someone who focuses or has an interest in a specific niche, or so to say. But I would definitely say that. Just by going about what you're doing in the way you are, by interviewing people from different backgrounds who have different topics, who have different positions. that's basically you're given a very it's it's a it's a means of basically demonstrating what criminology actually is. It isn't just what we see on television. It is much deeper than that.
0: I hope so. I hope so. Thank you for saying that. I, I hope so. I hope it's a, a means of so, sort of showcasing what uh, that inside um, perspective might look like, what for Stan mm-hmm. really um, involves, you know, which is, uh, which is, you know, taking the, as an example of hopefully what will be a forthcoming episode on, on, uh, perspectives of the incel culture yeah it's uh it's a means of delving deep into and do you know taking an in-depth on while trying not to be biased you know an in-depth perspective uh from the inside and um yeah so and in in a certain way i mean i it i might exude that a little bit by virtue of my day-to-day employment which remains uh Which I shall not say uh, more about specifically here at this time.
1: Anyone wants to know his job, I will leave my uh, bank account details in the description for this podcast, and feel free to make your donations.
0: (laughs) It's nothing too glamorous at all, but for (laughs) for Lee, you know, I'm just I'm dancing around the topic uh, in in wanting to ensure there's no conflicts of interest.
1: No, of course.
0: So, uh, but but let us hope that uh, soon um, it'll be two PhD candidates speaking and. um Let us hope that I can maybe, if, if this is valuable and useful, uh, there'll be some affirmation coming my way soon with an offer to uh, to commence PhD studies.
1: And, and I don't doubt it I don't doubt it one second.
0: Well, I'm hoping to to delve deeper into this idea of, uh, of what is maybe true crime and and uh, rather looking at the realities of crime instead. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's. I think that's. This is something that's interesting, I and mean, it's something I was going to touch upon earlier. And I thought, no, I'm going to be rambling on again. But the, the phrasing you use there sums it up perfectly the reality of crime. And if we were to be critical, what does that mean? Reality? How can we interpret it? Because we just talked about verstehen, and that's a constructivist approach. How do people interpret their surroundings or things that come towards them? And then, by definition they kind of transform it or they interpret it in a way which is based upon their own subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And by that, by that definition, or by that, how do you say we're taking that stance, we could question, is there then an objective reality? Is that even a question, or is that, is that even possible, or so to say? And these are the sort of questions that when you delve into the the, how do you say the cruxes, or to the background of criminology? These are these are the fun things to look into. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, should we be looking at what is the reality, or is there a reality? And also, mainstream criminology does. We could say their reality is their objectivity is it's illegal. This act is illegal. This is objective reality. Therefore, anything that is illegal has to be oppressed or reinforced or dealt with, for example. It's so and So what it, would we-
0: It's so important to highlight, though, the, what's criminal now, um, you know, what's illegal now is not illegal in certain other parts of the world and, and exactly. historically were not illegal. And the decriminalization of drugs, as you point to, show the uh, fluidity of how you know, the, the permeability of, of the status, what is legal and what is criminal. I mean, it's constantly changing and it's forever steeped in this idea of context and culture.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that also, if you look into, how do you say, if you look into politics, for example, uh, I mean, if we just look into all of a sudden when politics jumps onto the bandwagon of, for example, there's a lot of financial gain to, to, to make from, um, how do you say, uh, facilitating certain activities. I mean, all of a sudden, it's no longer a criminal act. And when those sort of large catalysts happen, not just from the government, but I mean, from society or from whatever side you want to look at, this is where you kind of see this slow transformation or this this morphism of what is criminal start to slowly change. And I mean, sometimes it's already been a process um, that's been in the process for years. It doesn't have to happen with a large catalyst, um, as I just said, but it can always be slowly in the in a pro it's constantly in evolution, but these large catalysts are really things that sort of get the band. How do you say the, the the, the wheel rolling a bit more and it changes the dynamics a whole lot faster and in, in different and various ways. In my opinion, I'm not a philosopher. Yeah. So. Well,
0: I think you are uh, you're certainly in a philosophy. Um, you're in, you're a candidate towards a philosophy degree.
1: Uh, I would say it's uh, blame it on the, on the beers. That's where yeah, it's coming from.
0: A bit of this armchair philosophy. Yeah. I, I you know, before we, uh, we, we wrap up, you know, you, you, you're right, you know, this idea of constructionism, and I think it has to do, I mean, indeed we're biased because we're interested in, you know, cultural and, and critical criminology, and that's not like orthodox and mainstream and, and majority types of, uh, of, uh, criminologists out there, but there is something to be said about contending with, you know, perception and, and projection and, uh, trying to make sense of the different realities of crime. And I would like to hope that there is an, one objective truth, although there are certainly divergent, uh, there are divergencies there, if that's a word. There are this, this is know, ex- examples of truth.
1: Yeah. Th- this is something that I want to talk about with you at a certain point, perhaps not on a second, uh, on another uh, uh, show, but just on a one-to-one, yeah. hopefully in person, hopefully over in uh, your neck of the woods, because I would like a holiday there. But um, how do you say this is something I would that we need to get into? Can we talk about something being an objective reality? Mm-hmm. Does that even exist, for example? And this is not something that I'm questioning or saying it doesn't exist. These are just uh, rhetorical questions mm-hmm. that could um, have some delving into. But these are the big questions that are fun to get into, and that criminology flirts with all the time, mm-hmm. or so to say, or critical criminology flirts with all the time
0: you'll certainly be uh, more than welcome when the borders open up. I'll look forward to you visiting again in Toronto. And I I had um, a conference that I was supposed to be at in, in Rotterdam and we plan to meet up in the Netherlands again uh, yeah. last year that was canceled due to the pandemic, unfortunately, but uh, uh, re- rest assured, we've got lots, lots more to look forward to together. I, as a, on a closing note, I won, want, uh, I wanted to ask you your, your um your opinion, having studied drugs and having an interest in the markets, um, maybe you can give me some some advice for where I should be uh, investing in my stocks. But I'm keenly <laughs> keenly keenly interested uh, at the moment in um, in the legal status of uh, psychedelics and the potential that they hold uh, in the yeah. in, in the future. I hear a lot of uh, work that's being done and and questions interesting research anyway, that's coming out of, um, you know, trying to develop psychiatry. And um, it seems like we might be on a, on a a breaking point of another, you know, another uh, breakthrough, or I don't don't know how to describe it. What is your opinion on, on um, drug market, specifically regarding other types of drugs, soft drugs, so to speak?
1: I think if we were to take the example of what you just mentioned now with the whole psychedelics and from what I understood, there's, an, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a market that's emerging around these psychedelics to kind of be put into a more medical use, for example, and to assist individuals with certain mental, how do you say, conditions certain illnesses, we could say, for example, such as trauma Etc. And how this these could be used to assist in certain things at
0: a time that we're all sort of inundating ourselves with um, with the abusing ourselves, if you will, with uh, true true crime media and Netflix and the endless stream of uh, of uh, travis you know travesty. Yeah. Um, maybe this is a potential solution in trying to. I mean, I'm I'm making fun of it, but I'm yeah. pointing to the anxiety the anxiety that people are experiencing day to day, being locked yeah, up in their homes. Yeah. I mean, there's a real need for for psychological and, and psychiatric well-being, and there doesn't seem to have been a breakthrough in, in uh,
1: psychiatry in the last century or so. No, I completely I completely understand. I completely agree with you in, in various in various aspects, sorry to what you said. But however, to go back to it is this comes back to what we were saying earlier with these stigmas and these stereotypes around it. I mean, if we think about just the word psychedelic drug now, it kind of conjures up these images of, LSD, 1970s, 60s, 70s, the hippies, etc. And now, to those who follow perhaps different types of media now, when we hear about psychedelics, we can also think about the designer drugs. So all these different chemicals that you can order online, uh, which mostly come from China, which no one really knows much about. And there's psychonauts, as they call themselves, who experiment with them to kind of see what are the doses, what are the effects, etc. What is what is good, what gives a good high, and which ones are not as good, et cetera, all these elements.
0: My understanding is Psychonaut was someone who kind of dabbled with psychedelics and was um, going inward and trying to better, you know, better maybe themselves or expand their mind, so to speak. But what you're alluding to with synthetic drugs, I think, from mm-hmm. you know, being imported uh, transnationally, um, I think there's a, there's a distinction to be made between sort of... N- natural substances of the earth um growing out of the ground although lsd is not one um no, but it, it would this,
1: be... this is this is an interest. sorry i cut you off there mike oh all no right.
0: not at all please i'm trying oh, to yeah. interview you i'm the one cutting this, you off
1: oh, no, 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 no no this is the interesting part when it comes to how you understood it because how i understood it psychonaut refers to for example exploring such as the astronaut for example it's the explorer going out to discover what there is and for what i've read or what i've seen i mean i could be completely wrong so please anyone correct me if i am wrong i'm not a, an expert in this field but what i understood is some of these self-labeled psychonauts are those who kind of go out to try and see what kind of different uh psychedelic but also any type of uh, new designer drugs new substances have for effect and kind of then being the new pushing the frontiers to discover um, how do you say, a new high or a new type of high. And that's what I understood from, from psychonauts rather than a psychophile, someone who likes to or kind of wants to uh, experiment with these drugs and kind of see where it goes from there, for example, or
0: I hadn't heard that term. Psycho psychophile isn't one I'd heard, but that also um, that makes sense to me as well. I, if anyone has uh, any, anyone listening has input, or maybe this will be the basis please of do. A, f- a future episode. Yeah, please do. I've set up the email so people can uh, connect if they want to contribute intellectually or creatively. You can contact uh, contact us through show at gmail.com. dot com. That's Show at gmail.com any uh psychonauts or psychophiles out there
1: uh, but, but if i may to to expand upon what you was what your question earlier just to finalize my point um i think that also this is what you said it's a merging market it's become more and more popular i would say i think it is in various certain aspects but on the other hand and this is what we talk about a lot in critical criminology with these stereotypes around it and these certain perceptions and these conjunctures that come up in people's in the collective psyche or so to say I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't be so sure to say if this is a stock to put your money on right now and to get huge payouts tomorrow or next week, for example. I think this is a long-term, how do you say, something that will develop a lot more in the future, for example. I mean, Damien Zeich, who was one of our professors, and we mentioned this podcast at the beginning of the show, my two Dutch researchers, uh, two Dutch students of there interviewed him, and he said that he sees certain drugs such as ecstasy becoming legalized or more tolerated in the future, but first it will start with cannabis as trends go to show this is being more and more uh, socially accepted. When it mm-hmm. comes to psychedelics, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I could be very wrong on this, but I think mm-hmm. to, from what I've heard about it, we, we don't Society has a construed image about it where they still see it as being associated with the hippie era, Mm. with the first generation who didn't want to work, who didn't want to conform to society's norms, who didn't want to be fit into the mold, or so to say. Mm. And this is still something that is predominant to a varying degrees in certain cycles about it. But like I said, you've probably done more research on this topic than I have. So please correct me if I'm wrong. I I could be uh, your own biases.
0: Yeah, well, I'll have you know I do have... um some in, some stocks invested. And in. I think it's going to uh, come up in the next while, but I do agree with you. I, I agree the market is shifting, but it's not going to be overnight. It's something that's going to take... I mean, this this has basically been shut down from the war on drugs mm-hmm. um, in, in the late 50s, 60s, 70s. So we're only picking up from a long time ago. Um, but the approach is now an institutional one where there's a lot, you know, there it seems this is the... This is the competition no. uh, in cap- in capitalism to traditional pharmacological intervention, mm-hmm. and I think with the sanctioning of institutional players, um, will come uh, will come you know some 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 interesting developments to say the least, um, you know tying it back into the economy and uh, and that interdisciplinary nature of criminal making it
1: mainstream. Yeah,
0: indeed, making it mainstream indeed. <laughs> it's a good note to uh, to wrap up on. Um, Alex. I wonder, um, before we do that, I often invite people on the show to um, feel welcome to throw out a, a shameless plug. I, um, or to perhaps nominate someone uh, that I should invite on the show, I'm going to be linking your profile perhaps with your permission and, uh, maybe some information on where to get your publications. Um, what, what is important for people to look into in your opinion? What, what do you think, uh, where can people find you or where can people learn more about what you're interested in?
1: Um, I would say if anyone is interested in anything I'm researching now, as I mentioned earlier, my background has been pretty eclectic when it comes to, uh, uh, academia and criminology in particular, as I've looked at uh, landlords, state agencies, the real estate world. Now I've moved on to more politics, corruption, etc. and before it was drug markets. But I would say if anyone wants to follow up on what I'm doing now, uh, please feel free to do so. My looking up my, um, my profile on the university, my dropping me an email, I'm more than happy to talk or answer any questions about anything, anytime, basically. I mean, if it comes to criminology, I'm always free um and if you're interested in anything i'm working on now feel free to mention that yeah
0: i'll i'll send you the uh the link where people can find this episode and if you're if you like it um you're welcome to to shop that out under your your um your media page on your profile nice so who do you think i should have on next we talked about uh dr zayich and yeah uh Damian, I think, would be a really interesting, now that I know he's doing podcasts, I wonder what his fee <laughs> might be or if he if, would do it pro, pro bono.
1: If I am honest, I was going to say before you answered the, mentioned this question, if you would have anyone on it, it has to be Damian, simply because, as you mentioned at the beginning, Stan is a criminologist, but he's come to be seen more as as a friend or someone who doesn't seem to be a professor or 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 anything like that he's more of a mentor someone who the godfather of criminology we could joke about seeing his a. Uh, uh, it's even funnier with his background in drug gr- drugs for example and his research in that field uh but i would definitely look into damian life simply because he's so articulate if you want to know anything about drug markets nowadays especially here in europe uh in the netherlands um particularly but generally all over the world also he's definitely one of the big voices to go to um so I would say Damian, but if not, if I may add, instead of looking to a person, I would say if criminology was to look into specific topics nowadays, which would be of big interest, I say green criminology, there's going to be something where we look into environmental harm. So not just defining crime as being harmful acts committed on other human beings, but also on nature in itself. And I would also say that when we look into the dark net or all this cybercrime, et cetera, um, there's a lot of misconceptions about what is the dark net so to say and also there's a lot of questions now about do our theories that we use in cultural criminology do they fit into this cyber world um the same way as they do into all the other types of research we've done previously and i think these are interesting topics to also explore so perhaps not people but topics yeah,
0: interesting more to the idea of you know alternate uh, realities and certainly we're encroaching on uh, delving into the world of virtual realities uh, everybody having to connect uh, during the pandemic it's uh, it's an interesting new world order yeah there's there, there's one other person in front of mind uh, in manchester i don't know if, if I... I was going to
1: say also he would definitely be in yeah. my top choice as well i think he would love to be part of the show. i, I also refrain to say from saying his name because I'm not sure how he feels about it at this mm-hmm. point of time. Yeah. But I would say he would definitely be top of the list as well without a doubt.
0: I'll be reaching out to our friend in Manchester and um, he's a f- front of mind as well.
1: Yeah, I can only say if you do get him on the show, I'll just be uh, jealous about how articulate he can be about certain uh, points in criminology.
0: So. Yeah, it'll be the uh, the basis of criminological theory I'll be uh, picking his brain on. He's a, a wizard on it, uh, having studied in the U UK, there was far greater development uh, of the discipline there than in France or in Canada, in my experience. Yeah,
1: yeah definitely. Yeah. Don't, although don't say it too much to him. You'll flatter him too much. And his uh, his ego may show a little bit.
0: I doubt that. He's uh, humble and, <laughs> yeah. and gracious as, as ever. So I'll look forward That's to true. reaching out to him soon. Well, Alex Belvoir, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been uh an episode of the Rex crim show, which uh, will be coming uh, out in the next few weeks. We'll be in touch before it does. And, uh, and we'll be shamelessly plugging it ourselves. I'm sure I'll give you the last word, my friend.
1: Thank you. That's the, uh, keep it short and sweet. Thank you very much. Keep uh, doing on this project. Uh, keep, uh, how do you say, keep on, on this project that you've just set out on. And I wish you all the best of luck. And I look forward to listening to your, to your future shows.
0: When you come back to visit me again in Canada, we'll have, we'll have a great time. Uh, philosophizing together
1: i can't wait philosophizing and banter re- reminiscing
0: and the innuendos and in, in, as well we'll, we'll uh, touch back on some of our grad school days uh, in a future episode
1: we better thanks mike
0: all the best to you my friend talk to you soon take care Bye bye